0: From the Chipstone Foundation, you're listening to Cellar Door, a podcast about objects. I'm Pierce Kelly. This is the second episode of Cellar Door, and it is called Oil
1: The Mary Jane of Sunderland sails under our lee. She's trying to get to weather of us, but that can never be. Our captain's on the quarter deck, crying steady as she goes. When up aloft, the lookout sings out there, she blows. We cheerful, my lads, let your hearts never fail. While the bold harpooner is striking at the whale. On August 25th, 1924,
0: a whaling ship called the Wanderer left New Bedford, Massachusetts. Crowds lined the shore to watch the sails fill with wind. For years and years, whaling money made New Bedford the wealthiest town in America, but that industry was dying. This was New Bedford's last whaling voyage. We don't know what those spectators thought, but a local paper gives some idea.
2: With her disappearance, all of the once glorious fleet of New Bedford whalers will have faded into ghost ships or been reduced to sad, silent hulks neglected except by the casual visitor.
0: The Wanderer set sail on Monday. On Tuesday, it crashed just a few miles out off the island of Cuddyhunk. Tourists and locals alike flocked to the island to watch sailors hurry cargo ashore before the Atlantic knocked the ship apart. One newspaper editorial ran,
2: There's something pathetic in the fate of whalers as they have rotted away at the New Bedford wharves. Torn to fragments on the rocks of Cuddyhunk by that angry ocean she had often braved, The Wanderer's End is nobler than that of dying by inches in the slack waters of a harbor.
0: Thus, New Bedford Whaling ended, with this scene of unambiguous ruin. There was no doubt in the mind of Colonel Edward Green, who wrote,
2: On the day following the recent storm, I looked over the bay with a pair of powerful glasses, which I had frequently tested by focusing on the Wanderer. I could not pick her up. She was gone.
0: Then and there at that moment, Green later wrote, he saw that the whaling industry would vanish. He took it hard. Whaling had made Green rich by way of inheritance and smart investment on the part of his mother, Hetty Green, who was for a time the wealthiest woman in America. Seeing that the family industry was history, Colonel Green made a choice. Another New Bedford whaler, a ship named the Charles W. Morgan, bobbed in a nearby harbor, dying by inches. Colonel Green bought that ship, brought it to his house, stuck it in the sand, and opened it as a museum.
3: And he insisted that alongside where the Morgan was going to be installed, there'd be barrels of whale oil that were constantly renewed with fresh whale oil that they would rub into the surface of the barrels in order to make sure that the the scent of whale oil remained fresh. That's
0: writer Jamie L. Jones, whose forthcoming book tells this story.
3: And so that old timers from New Bedford, as they would walk by, the, the Morgan, they would pass these casks that were scented like fresh whale oil, and they would have this experience that would bring them back.
0: Back, by way of smell, to the vanishing world of whale oil.
3: The way I introduced whaling to my students is that it's a form of 19th century energy.
0: At its peak, whaling was fifth among U.S. industries. Whale oil lubricated machinery and so, quite literally, ran the American Industrial Revolution. Whale oil also lit street lamps.
3: The light that whale oil produced was supposed to have been wonderfully colorless, like a bright white light. A lot of newspaper editorial writers uh, on both sides of the Atlantic actually worked on how, thanks to whale oil, city streets are becoming places where people can be out at all times of night and move around comfortably and safely. Whale oil is really part of the shift of the population away from rural areas to urban centers.
0: From our petroleum world, it's hard to see the world of whale oil, but it's worth looking closer.
3: If you think about whale oil as an analog to petroleum, we're really only one energy source away from whale oil today.
0: And thanks to West Coast whaling, we ran on whale oil longer than you might think. Here's Fred Calabretta, curator of collections at Mystic Seaport.
4: Whale oil was used in automatic transmissions until the 1970s. In cars, (laughs) yeah, because it performed well when it was hot. My understanding is that it was the standard. If you went to the automotive department at Sears in 1970 and you bought a quart of fluid for your automatic transmission, much of what you're getting in that container is whale oil.
3: But another persistent rumor about whale oil is that it's still used today to lubricate the Hubble Space Telescope because whale oil retains its viscosity at very, very low temperatures. So it's perfect for a kind of machine with moving parts in space where it's very cold.
0: This Hubble rumor is false, but NASA's lunar orbiters did take pictures on magnetic tape for which the medium binding magnetic particles to the tape itself was whale oil. Studios recorded music onto magnetic tape, too. Almost all early Beach Boys tracks, for example.
1: You
5: see her standing in the dim twilight. That
0: too is the sound of whale oil. I've been thinking a lot about how it feels to live within a particular energy system. How we experience a system as sights, sounds, smells, even tastes. As someone who really, really hopes our world someday runs on wind, solar, geothermal, I think it's really important to try to imagine what that world would look like. And I think that stepping outside the petroleum economy, even for half an hour, might help us see it. So here's a whaling story that begins in January of 2009, amid the largest economic recession
4: since the Great Depression. If you think back to that period of history, it's not a period of time where we feel happy or warm. That's Steve White, president of Mystic Seaport,
0: the Museum of America and the Sea. His tenure at Mystic's helm began right around the first serious plummet of that recession, which hit nonprofits very hard. Steve inherited the project of restoring the Charles W. Morgan, the whale ship Green saved.
4: And... We hadn't raised all the money for it. The economy was falling apart and we had to do something.
0: Like Colonel Green, Steve made a choice. Faced with financial disaster, Steve decided that Mystic needed to take its largest and most valuable artifact back to sea under full sail. Mystic would call the campaign the 38th Voyage, since the Morgan had done 37 voyages to date. If this move wouldn't raise enthusiasm for the restoration, Steve figured, what would? Long story short, it worked. They raised the money, finished the restoration, and added modern amenities like fire extinguishers. On May 17, 2014, crowds lined the banks of the Mystic River, cheering as the
4: ship left the harbor for the first time since 1941. We move away from the dock, and we're headed down the river, and it's... Oh my god. Uh, here we are. Well, there were a couple of moments when I was on board when, when, when I, I have to confess I felt a little anxious. At the very mouth of the river, we—it's very shallow. A lot of silt is built up there. And sure enough, as we got to the mouth of the river, as we're trying to jockey into position, we got a little sideways and we got stuck in the mud. Uh, so there was that moment that oh my gosh, you know, this is this is not good. Uh, I'm standing with our next to our state senator, and uh, and I'm saying to him, this is not good. <laughs> and uh, but in you know thirty seconds we. would push through the muck and all is well.
1: Here's a rowdy one. It's advertised in Boston, New York, and Buffalo, 500 young Americans wailing for to go. Cheer up, my lively lads, in spite of stormy weather. Cheer up, my lively lads, we'll all get drunk together. They take you to New Bedford, that famous whaling port, where they'll give you to a land shark to board and fit you out. They'll take you to a tavern, a while therefore, for to dwell. The thieves there are thicker than the other side of hell, and it's cheer up my lively The Charles
0: W. Morgan set sail for other. New London, bearing artists, scholars, musicians, scientists, and other 38th Voyagers that Mystic invited aboard to document and interpret the voyage for posterity. Jamie Jones was one of them. It
3: was a full-body experience. I got horribly seasick on the Morgan. Horribly seasick, horribly seasick. What's it
0: like to be seasick aboard the Charles W. Morgan? It
3: gave me a lot of compassion for the people in the past. I don't think by virtue of being a professional sailor in the 19th century, you are immune from seasickness. I mean, Melville and other people write about this feeling a lot and what it was like to have to work when you're sick. The feeling of seasickness is also embarrassing, you know? I know all the parts of the ship are called. I know where the ship had gone. I've read its log books. I know about its history. When I got aboard and I was seasick, I just felt like that expertise was not completely out from under my feet. (laughs) Now
1: you're out to sea, my boys, the wind begins to blow. One half of the crew is sick on deck, the other half sick below. You're standing by the galley with an eye out for the mate. When you smell the salt horse cooking and up comes all you've ate. Cheer up, my lively lads, in spite of stormy weather.
0: From New London, the ship sailed to Newport, Rhode Island. Meanwhile, the ship's crew met the vessel anew on the open ocean.
1: We have talked for years
2: about how she was kind of big and fat. We were always saying she only went three to five knots, which is a little bit of three to five miles per hour. And nobody told her, so... Very first day, first sea trail, she hit seven and a half knots. Wow. And then after that, she went like faster and faster. And I think the fastest we got was about 8.3 knots, but she certainly could have gone faster than that.
0: That's Mary Kay Burkaw Edwards. She's a professor of English and foreman of Mystic's Demonstrations Squad. Her husband, Craig Edwards, provided me with all these amazing sea shanties. As far as the sound, sensations, and smells of whaling, there's a great deal we don't know. New England whaling mostly predates photography and far predates color film. But we do have one text to which scholars love to turn for sensory detail.
2: we got a lot of Moby Dickheads. <laughs> that's, that's not our term. We usually say Melvillians or Melville scholars, but it's when other people are like, oh, look, the Moby Dickheads. I was like, great, could you come up with a better name for us?
0: Mary showed me the Morgan's Triworks, the huge metal pots between the foremast and mainmast where Wellman melted blubber into precious oil.
2: The little bits of blubber that don't kick, cook down or put underneath and and cooked uh, using this as, like, a fireplace.
1: Now the trying up begins your work in night and day. When you're done, it's 50 cents a piece on the 150th lay. Cheer up my life. Starting in the
0: 1700s, tryworks allowed whalers to perform this task without returning to land, as a result of which the industry boomed. Whalers could spend years at sea. The Morgans' tryworks are cold, But we know how they smelled because Herman Melville's 1851 novel, Moby Dick, imparts a wealth of sensory detail.
2: Melville says it smells like the left wing of the Day of Judgment. It is an argument for the pit.
5: Like a plethoric burning martyr or a self-consuming misanthrope once ignited, the whale supplies his own fuel and burns by his own body. Would that he consumed his own smoke. It smells like the left wing of the Day of Judgment. It is an argument for the pit.
2: So it's hard to tell, but it it really smells badly. With huge pronged poles,
5: the harpooners pitched hissing masses of blubber into the scalding pots or stirred up the fires beneath till the snaky flames darted, curling out of the doors to catch them by the feet. The smoke rolled away in sullen heaps. To every pitch of the ship, there was a pitch of the boiling oil, which seemed all eagerness to leap into their faces."
0: For Melville, we learn not just what happened in the triworks, but what might have happened around them. He writes that Whalemen would lounge near the triworks and tell stories while staring into the flames.
5: As they narrated to each other their unholy adventures, their tales of terror told in words of mirth, as their uncivilized laughter forked upwards out of them like the flames from the furnace, as to and fro in their front The harpooners wildly gesticulated with their huge pronged forks and dippers, as the wind howled on and the sea leaped, and the ship groaned and dived, and yet steadfastly shot her red hell further and further into the blackness of the sea in the night, and scornfully champed the white bone in her mouth, and viciously spat round her on all sides. Then the rushing Pequod, freighted with savages and laden with fire and burning a corpse and plunging into that blackness of darkness, seemed the material counterpart of her monomaniac commander's soul.
0: not hard to understand why Melville's scene is not particularly cheerful, nor why so many sea shanties include incitements to cheer up. Though whaling made men like Colonel Green wealthy, it was terrible for the people who worked on the ships.
3: Whaling was a form of extremely exploitative labor. It was brutal. It was dangerous. You could be lost at sea. You could be abandoned. You could be spilled into the ocean by a whale. You could arrive back at port after a five years voyage, which is a feat of survival, by the way, just to make it back home and you would be broken in debt and forced to enlist and ship on the next whaling voyage that went out.
0: Mary Kay showed me the cramped sleeping quarters where the whalemen slept and where the 38th voyagers slept also. This
2: is where 24 men lived.
0: Wow, this is nuts.
2: The mast goes right through the middle. You notice there's no table. You would have just sat on the sea chest or on the edge of your bunk to eat. And it would have been very crowded and hot. They were spent most of their time in the tropics. It was a space not much
0: larger than the back of a U-Haul. This is where whaling men spent their nights on voyages during which they were more isolated than astronauts. Mary Kay made sure I understood these quarters weren't tiny because people were smaller back then. They were tiny because the owners of these whalers wanted as much space as possible in the hold for oil.
1: Now our ship is full of oil, homeward we are sailing. A winding glass around will pass, and damn this blubber whaling. Cheer up, my lively lads, in spite of stormy weather. Cheer up, my lively lads, we'll all get drunk together. They promised you a bonus for every whale you've spied. Your bonus you will get, my boys, of course, when pigs can fly.
0: The ship sailed next from Martha's Vineyard. Throughout the restoration, Steve and his team had debated where to go, but one destination was obvious.
4: Where would you go? You'd go home. You'd take her home to New Bedford, where she was built in 1841.
0: Back to New Bedford, Massachusetts, where Colonel Green got the ship in the first
4: place. Number one whaling port in the country, if not the world. In essence, the
0: Morgan followed the money. Here's what Herman Melville wrote about New Bedford's heyday.
5: Nowhere in all America will you find more patrician-like houses, parks and gardens more opulent than in New Bedford. Whence came they? How planted upon this once scraggy scoria of a country? Go and gaze upon the iron emblematical harpoons round yonder lofty mansion, and your question will be answered. Yes, all these brave houses and all flowery gardens came from the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans. One and all, they were harpooned and dragged up hither from the bottom of the sea. In
0: 1841, the Charles W. Morgan became one of about 2,700 whalers to sail the globe, bringing vast sums of money back to New Bedford. The whaling industry peaked just after the Morgan began sailing. From there, it was downhill thanks to petroleum. In 1859, Colonel Edwin Drake struck oil in Pennsylvania, and many others followed.
3: It was easier to get at. The technology was developing very quickly, and it produced a much, 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 much higher volume of oil than anyone had dreamed of in the whale fishery.
0: By the Great Depression, New Bedford was floundering.
3: It became a tourist attraction, as did Nantucket, because the kind of fading of economic grandeur, the visibility of poverty, the breakdown of ships was seen by a lot of tourists as picturesque.
0: This is the origin of the quaint, sun-bleached, paint-peeling New England aesthetic.
3: Old fishermen with white beards sitting by the dockside in a picturesque New England town, those are unemployed people.
0: Jamie suggested thinking about such images as 19th century examples of the petroleum world phenomenon of... Ruin porn.
3: For the last couple of years, uh, I lived in Michigan and spent a lot of time in Detroit. And there was a steady stream of out of town visitors who came to Detroit to photograph the abandoned auto plants. The dynamic between those visitors who are coming to appreciate the aesthetic qualities of these abandoned sites of industrial production and these visible signs of poverty, the dynamic between them and the people who lived in Detroit who are grappling with unemployment or underemployment, who are grappling with the loss of city services, the breakdown of local government systems, was quite dramatic and quite damaging and quite violent.
0: As I walked around New Bedford with Mike Dyer, Senior Maritime Historian at the New Bedford Whaling Museum, he pointed out the many large columned buildings populating the city center, All former banks that outlived whaling, now either shops or unused space. You know,
6: the 20th century was brutal on an awful lot of 19th century New England. These cities, they just just crumbled, and some of them, you know, they never came back. Today, you know, the city has a lot of heart. We're still a highly profitable, I think the single highest profit-grossing fishing port in the USA due to the scallop industry. Mike,
0: along with Mary Kay and Steve White, experienced the Morgans' return to New Bedford Harbor from the deck of the ship.
4: It begins when we sailed through the hurricane barrier. They were shooting off cannons from the park. The shore is just packed with people. There was a
2: huge spectator fleet coming in. There were helicopters overhead. All these whale boats had rowed out to greet us. People were lining the barrier. And we went to the dock. It was just masses of people.
6: I was sort of um, awestruck, actually. I mean, it was pretty quiet. Just people were glowing. When we got to the wharf. when we got to State Pier, two of my colleagues, Melanie and Arthur, actually sort of jumped the rope line and were right there. And I can't describe the look on their faces. <laughs> You know, I don't think I've ever seen pure joy before, uh, as encompassed as it was. And it's no exaggeration. It, It was pure joy.
4: And from that moment until the moment we left, there was nothing but gratitude.
6: The people... That came through were just really
0: excited. The city of New Bedford organized lectures, concerts, dockside exhibits, opening and closing ceremonies. So it was almost like the Olympics. Despite the withering July heat, over 28,000 people from New Bedford and environs walked the Morgan's decks. It made
4: all of the effort, everything we did. so worth it to see the joy in their face, tears in their eyes.
1: I've been a sea cook and I've been a whalerman. I can sing, I can dance, I can walk the jibboom, boom. I can handle a harpoon. I cut a fine figure whenever I get in a boat standing room. We'll rant and we'll roll like true Yankee whalermen. Rant and we'll roar on deck or below. Gay head Martha's Vineyard, straight up the channel to New Bedford, will
3: Something that came up a lot was the hope that a lot of local politicians have that New Bedford will become a site of wind energy development.
0: Here's Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren.
3: It is great to welcome the Charles W. Morgan home. Uh, it is a reminder that
2: New Bedford was the city that lit the world. And that's going to happen again. We're here to celebrate New Bedford's past, but also New Bedford's future. New Bedford is going to be the home to wind energy that is going to help light the world again.
0: Do you think it's inevitable that we're at some point going to, like, aestheticize oil rigs? Is it possible that that's how we deal with you know, parts of our culture that we kind of just like take for granted, and then when we no longer need them, their obsolescence has its own kind of like importance. Well,
3: we already aestheticize so much about petroculture. We aestheticize the experience of driving. Um, I mean, that's a kind of beautiful, iconic, and in some ways explicitly American experience.
0: Jamie turned me onto a book called *Living Oil*. The author, Stephanie Lomenager, lays out this idea that living within an energy system means seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, tasting, and breathing the world that system makes possible. Depending on when you're listening to this, you probably grew up living oil. I certainly did. And I have to say, I love some aspects of living oil.
3: Living oil feels like the exuberance of taking a road trip or of lifting off in a plane.
0: It feels like learning to drive with my mom passing 30 miles per hour for the first time and feeling as if the car would shake itself to pieces. It feels like reading Jack Kerouac in high school or the cumulative weeks of podcasts I've listened to while driving.
3: It also feels like watching oil gush into the Gulf of Mexico.
0: In trying to imagine a post-petroleum, maybe even post-nuclear world, trying to imagine how it would feel to live solar or wind, it's odd to think of absence making the heart grow fonder. But in a way, I can already see it. It'll feel like reliving Wailing from the deck of the Morgan at the New Bedford Wharf on the pages of Moby Dick or in a song.
1: Wounded and sore yet with strength undiminished wildly he thrashes the sea in his ire a lance to his life and his struggles they are finished slowly he sinks with his chimney on fire and that was actually the traditional cry when they saw him spout blood that yells chimneys on fire now hear the joyful shout burst from each seaman stout Drowning the ocean with its thunderous roar. See from his spout all the red signal flying. Slowly he dies and his troubles are o'er.
0: There's one last chapter. The Morgan sailed on from New Bedford out to Provincetown and then Stellwagen Bank National Marine
4: Sanctuary off the tip of Cape Cod.
2: I mean, we went specifically to Stellwagen Bank because we knew that the whales would
4: be there. So the whales showed up. Humpbacks, Menkes, and finbacks. And there was a mother and her calf that were very curious about the whale boat.
2: When we got close, we hove the vessel to and then lowered the whale boat down and just rode close to the whales. That was amazing, but it was also a little terrifying. Um, And I hadn't expected that. I thought it would just be cool. I thought it would just be, you know, (laughs) on the coolness factor, you know, off the charts, which it was, but there was also a little fear there. just made you realize how small and vulnerable you felt in the whale boat compared to the size of the whale.
3: Something that I know that environmentalists and marine biologists and whaling historians are really interested in thinking about is how and whether people who worked in the whaling industry were aware that they were depleting populations of whales. I've come across in a lot of log entries, whalemen writing about how the whales are getting wily and smart. We have to go to farther and farther places because uh, the whales nearby are getting too tricky and too wise for the whalemen, and I think that's a, a funny way of imagining serial species depletion that, in fact, the whales are still there, but they're just running away. My honest belief at this point is that the only reason that we did not utterly extinct the whales is because a new energy source was developed that seemed cheaper and more available. And frankly, that makes me very pessimistic. I don't believe that we're going to develop a new energy source because we ought to, because climate change is driving us to. I believe we're going to develop a new energy source when a very acceptable and cheap and easy and profitable alternative emerges. And that makes me very scared. I I believe that we would have fished those whales straight into oblivion, like directly, completely, utterly into oblivion.
0: There are gentle contradictions if you know where to look for them. There's a scene in Moby Dick where the whalers find themselves in a rowboat at the calm center of a massive, circular pod of whales. The whalers put aside their harpoons and sit in their boat observing whale cows and calves, idly oblivious to the bloody chase.
5: Far beneath this wondrous world upon the surface, another and still stranger world met our eyes as we gazed over the side, or suspended in those watery vaults. "'floated the forms of the nursing mothers of the whales, "'and those that by their enormous girth "'seemed shortly to become mothers. "'The lake, as I have hinted, "'was to a considerable depth exceedingly transparent, "'and as human infants suckling "'will calmly and fixedly gaze away from the breast, "'as if leading two different lives at the time, "'and while yet drawing mortal nourishment,' Be still spiritually feasting upon some unearthly reminiscence. Even so did the young of these whales seem looking up toward us, but not at us, as if we were but a bit of gulfweed in their newborn sight. And thus did these inscrutable creatures at the center freely and fearlessly indulge in all peaceful concernments. But even so, amid the tornadoed Atlantic of my being, why myself still forever centrally disport in mute calm, and while ponderous planets of unwaning woe revolve round me deep down and deep inland, there I still bathe me in eternal mildness of joy.
0: This story was written and produced by me, Pierce Skelly. My editors are Jonathan Prown and Sarah Carter. Manon Lefebvre voiced the New Bedford newspapers and Colonel Green at the beginning. Salvatore Skibona read for Herman Melville. Thanks to Jamie L. Jones for additional editorial help. Thanks to Mystic Seaport, who tell me that the Morgan will sail again someday, at the right time and for the right reasons. Thanks to Brian Morris and WCAI for the tape of Elizabeth Warren. Thanks also to the amazing Craig Edwards, who gave me more sea shanties than I could possibly fit into one podcast. I've posted full recordings of more songs on our website, cellardoor.audio, where you can download them if you wish, free of charge. This episode also featured music from This Is How We Fly and Clap Your Hands Say Yeah. Resounding thanks to both groups. You can hear more from them and read a transcript of the show at our website. That site and our logo were designed by Wynne Patterson. Our theme music is by Daniel Nass. Cellar Door is a project of the Chipstone Foundation, an organization devoted to the study of material culture and decorative arts. You can visit our galleries at the Milwaukee Art Museum, and you can learn more about us at chipstone.org.